from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello. My name is Alyssa Carroll, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we go through the lives of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to some of my patrons, of course. Rachel Whitney Pixie, Maya, Alethea, Elena, Aaron, Katoras, Catherine, Sam, Linda, Janice, Katarina, Teresa, Sarah, Sophie, Nanette, my dear two Emmas, Emily, Gabrielle, Galen, Cassandra, Bree, David, John, and my girl Judy. Thank you so, so much, guys. You are truly appreciated. And for everyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that I can bring you more of what you crave. This week's podcast will be on Eileen Warnos. This is a revisit, but it desperately needed it. So fortunate for us, her entire life has been well-documented, which is a double-edged sword. On one hand, it isn't nearly as difficult to dig and find the tidbits of information I know you want compared to lesser-known serial killers. On the other hand, there's so much more information that I feel is important to the overall story, so this will be a long one, which I know you love. And also, this is Eileen Warnos. In true crime communities, she has become sort of serial killer royalty. You name the top 10 best known serial killers, and she's probably the only female on the list, at least to the general public. For those of us who are connoisseurs, if you will, can name plenty of other women, but you get the idea. The movie that was made about her called Monster, starring Charlize Theron as Eileen, was good. In fact, Charlize was great. Our beloved American Horror Story paid homage to her during the season 5 Halloween episode of Hotel as well. Look at my eyes. Welcome to Devil's Night at the Hotel Cortez, John. And although she murdered a number of men and therefore fits the, you know, technical criteria for being a true serial killer, she is one of the very select few that I believe does not truly fit the stereotype because there was no lust, power and control, reliving the murders and so on. The things that are part of what a serial killer is and does Anyone who has even the slightest idea of what she had been through in her life, especially in her early years, should be able to see pretty clearly why she turned out the way that she did. Now, I'm not saying that she didn't have control over her life path, because she most certainly did, but she was set up for epic failure from day one, most assuredly. Eileen Carol Warnos was actually born on Leap Day, February 29, 1956, in Rochester, Michigan, but grew up in the nearby city of Troy. For those that might not know, 
A leap day is the extra day added on to the end of the month of February every four years, though every 100 years it is skipped for that year. It's really all part of our slightly flawed Gregorian calendar and we humans trying to synchronize it with astronomical and seasonal years. So, as we always do, let's get some context as to what was going on in the world that Eileen was born into. Let's get into some history for that time. In 1956, Dwight D. Eisenhower was the president, Richard Nixon the vice president, and the United States was considered the world's strongest military power. After World War II, the country was experiencing post war booms. Meaning the economy was booming, more and more people were moving to the suburbs, and then, of course, the largest number of the baby boomers were born during this time. People were wholly optimistic, thinking that after that horrible war, there was going to be nothing but peace and prosperity for the rest of time. The middle class had a lot more money to spend. And simultaneously, there were so many technological advances and more and more items being created. There were a lot more things in general to buy. Traveling was also becoming a very popular thing as the United States put forth the Federal Aid Highway Act and began building 41,000 miles of interstate highways, opening the country up for everyone. The GI Bill had been introduced to help returning soldiers with getting home loans at low interest rates, meaning it was actually cheaper to buy a nearly brand new home in the suburbs compared to renting an apartment in the cities. Having a much larger living space and actually having a yard for your children to play in, what part of any of that is a bad thing? But at this time, women were being encouraged to quit working and go back to being a happy housewife. And we've all seen the old advertising of the perfect housewife with the perfect hair, vacuuming and heels, and so on. Think Betty from the show Mad Men. Also, the civil rights movement was intensifying. Black Americans were becoming quite frustrated at having to fight so hard for the rights they should have already had. In a case called Brown v. Board of Education, the Supreme Court ruled that segregation of schools was inherently unequal. And while it was a win for racial equality, some white families, predominantly in the South, took their kids out of public schools and put them in special all white schools. Disappointingly, in 1956, several Southern congressmen signed the Southern Manifesto, stating they would fight for continued segregation. Then, when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat, that started a 13 month boycott of public buses, which worked. The bus companies stopped discriminating. The Cold War was still a pretty big deal, and that there was a lot of tension between the Soviet Union and the United States during this time. People all over the country were scared that there were communists among them that wanted to destroy American society from within. Eventually, Congress held a total of 84 hearings, and the goal was to stop what they deemed un American activities everywhere. College campuses, public schools, the media, etc. But for the most part, 
Life was good. The average cost for a new house was eleven thousand seven hundred U.S. dollars. Wages averaged four thousand four hundred and fifty dollars per year. A new car was about two thousand fifty dollars, and a gallon of gas was just twenty-two cents. There was such an increase in living standards, and getting a proper education became so important to the citizens of the country that a whopping one in three high school graduates went on to college. Mothers were able to buy the first disposable diapers. Soap operas were beginning, such as As the World Turns, and The Price Is Right also began. Actress and Hollywood royalty Grace Kelly married Prince Rainier of Monaco in France, which is very close to the Italian border on the coast. Elvis Presley's song "Heartbreak Hotel" entered the U.S. music charts for the first time, as well as his first movie "Love Me Tender." He also appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show, though his gyrating hips and dance moves were considered quite scandalous at the time. And he wasn't the only popular musician at the time. There was Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, Johnny Cash, Ella Fitzgerald, and Dean Martin. Other famous people born the same year as Eileen is David Copperfield and Bo Derek. Another interesting product to be introduced at this time were little portable black and white televisions. Videotapes and video recorders also hit the market. So this was the atmosphere that Eileen was born into. So Eileen Carol Pittman, which was her birth name, was sadly born into an already less than ideal situation. Her father was Leo Dale Pittman. Her mother, Diane Warnos, and she had an older brother named Keith, who was one year older than her. So let's start with her biological father. Leo Dale Pittman was the son of Arthur Stewart Briggs and Ellen L. Briggs Westfall. Her maiden name was Pittman. Leo's grandfather, Eileen's great grandfather, born in 1872, had hailed from London, England. He had immigrated to the United States before he and his wife had Leo's father, Arthur, who was the first generation born in the United States. In 1913, just northwest of Detroit, near Troy, Arthur married Ellen Pittman, and they had Eileen's father, Leo. Born in 1936, Leo did have a half sister, Debbie. They shared Ellen as their mother only. This, of course, means that Arthur and Ellen split at some point. And I tried to find any pertinent information about them and their split or their personalities, but I wasn't able to. The takeaway is their son and Eileen's biological father, Leo, was born, and when he was seven years old, he was adopted by his maternal grandparents. So Leo met Eileen's biological mother, Diane, and they were married on June third, nineteen fifty-four. Diane Warnos, Eileen's mother, married Leo when she was just fourteen years old. Her parents knew Leo was no good and did not approve of their relationship, but Diane dated him anyway. Their relationship was turbulent and violent, to say the least, but they still ran off and got hitched. Leo and Diane had Keith after they were married, having been pregnant before the marriage. Eleven months later, Eileen was born. Diane divorced Leo not long after. Eileen would ultimately never meet. Her father. 
Now, Leo was described as a mean-tempered, abusive husband and pedophile, as well as a diagnosed schizophrenic who committed suicide while in prison in 1969, where he was serving his sentence for kidnapping and raping a seven-year-old little girl. He had abandoned his pregnant wife and son before Eileen was even born to join the military and avoid jail time. And if you Google a picture of her father, which I'll include in the video, you will immediately see her resemblance to him. And then looking back at her family tree on her father's side, you can see that there were signs of mental illness going back generations. Now, Diane, Eileen's mother's father, committed suicide in 1976, which we'll get to later. Diane's grandparents on her mother's side were from Finland, and her grandfather had also committed suicide. So, as you can see, mental illness ran on both sides of her DNA. Her ancestors were day laborers, coal miners, farmers, and farmhands. They worked in factories. Her father worked in one of the automobile factories that are famous in Michigan. All of them knew what a hard day's work was. Diane was just not made of the strong stock that their past family was. She was reckless, irresponsible, and did not like being inconvenienced in any way. But she was a beautiful young lady who did not want to be tied down to any sort of real responsibility. So she abandoned her two children with her parents, and she never returned to take them back. Diane's parents, Lori and Britta Warnos, adopted Keith and Eileen and raised them alongside the two older children they still had living at home, named Barry and Lori, who were Diane's younger siblings. So the four of them were raised together. Lori Warnos had a mean temper and was an alcoholic. Eileen's adoptive sister, Lori, stated in an interview with A&E that, quote, my dad was very strict. We would get spankings with a belt with our pants down to discipline us, end quote. The neighborhood kids would later state that he wasn't mean to any of them, but it was well known that he was strict with his own two children, and he was very mean to Eileen and Keith. It is said that Lori called her evil and wicked and worthless and told her she should have never been born. He even drowned one of her kittens right in front of her. As Eileen grew into a young child, people commented on how very pretty she was, blonde hair and brown eyes. But she had a temper that seemed to come out of nowhere. No one would be bothering her at school, for example, and she would suddenly explode into rage, which frightened the other children, and they steered clear of her. Her best friend at the time was her brother Keith, though they had the very typical sibling rivalry. They could be mean to each other, but God forbid anyone outside of those two say or do anything out of line to their sibling. There was some sources that said Lori forced her into an incestuous relationship with him. However, I am unable to verify that at the time of this recording. But it is known that when Eileen was 10 years old, Keith being 11, that they had a very dark secret. They were beginning to explore each other sexually in private. At some point in the next couple of years, they had intercourse together and a neighboring boy was a witness. 
One might think her brother was talking her into it, but it was obvious that Eileen was a happy and willing participant. When she was 11 years old, she found out that her grandparents were not her real parents. She soon began sneaking out of her house to meet up with other kids at a hangout spot they called The Pits. It was in some woods near the neighborhood. They built fire pits and listened to loud music. The other kids still really didn't like Eileen, but she soon began to fit in when she started having sex with the boys in exchange for money. With that money, she bought things for the other kids. It's almost like she was paying them to like her. You see, sex was no big deal to her at all. But the attention she got from using the money she earned to buy cigarettes, drugs, and beer that she shared with the other kids, and well, she loved that. The boys treated her horribly, but still, she liked the money and the attention from the other kids, so she put up with it. Obviously, this began to take a toll on her. Her grades began to slip at school. The fighting between her and her grandfather got worse and worse. Finally, she and her brother Keith decided to run away, but they got caught and were put into a reform school before being returned to their grandparents. So when Eileen was 14 years old, she was raped by an adult neighbor. She soon found out she was pregnant and kept the pregnancy to herself for nearly six months before her grandparents found out. Her grandfather demanded she give the baby up for adoption immediately after she gave birth. He then sent her off to an unwed mother home to finish out her pregnancy and give birth. She had a son in 1971, but the baby was quickly taken away and adopted out. Eileen later stated that she wasn't against putting her infant son up for adoption. It was that she wasn't even allowed to see him, even for a moment, and also that she had no one to talk to about any of it. The sense of loss that any woman who had just given birth would feel for not having seen her infant, not to mention her very young age. She was allowed to recover and then immediately sent back to her grandparents' house. From that moment, Eileen had had enough. She kept running away from home. In a letter she wrote to her dearest and lifelong friend, Don Botkins, she described this experience. She said, quote, I remember winters when I was a runaway, sleeping in the snow, no money, no warmth, nowhere to go, and hungry as hell. I remember a time I awoke in the spring sleeping at the pit, raining like hell, thunder and lightning. I looked up and saw the hill sand turning to mud, sliding down at me and swirling mud around me. I was so tired and weak from lack of eating, I said, screw it, I'll go back to sleep. End quote. Another memory she shared with Dawn in a letter said, quote, I remember a guy from high school offering me to stay at his place since he lived outside of his parents' house alone. He got me drunk. He got me high. I passed out. He must have carried me to his bedroom. During my unconscious state, friend of his, some I knew, some I didn't, must have started to come over to party. Apparently finding I was in the bedroom, they tied my wrist to the bedpost. Spread eagle tied my ankles to the end bedpost. I woke up 
knowing she had been raped and assaulted. I screamed bloody murder to untie me. They did. I got dressed and said I'd go to the cops, you scum. They told me if I ever did, Lori, which is her adoptive sister, would be next and or your death, end quote. So she'd be put into juvenile centers and sent back home. Soon after, her grandmother died from liver failure. After that, her grandfather... Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Father kicked her out of the house for good. He told her, quote, Don't you ever step foot in this house again because I can't deal with you kids anymore. End quote. Eileen and Keith both were forced out. Keith moved in with some friends and stayed in that area while Eileen decided it was time to move on. She was just 15 years old. So that's basically Eileen's childhood. So let's take a look at that for a moment. Let's also set aside the mental illness ingrained in both sides of her DNA that she most likely inherited or at least influenced her own personality. We already know that that is most likely a contributing factor to her later crimes, but let's look at the environmental issues that she dealt with. Her mother abandoned her and her brother when she was only four years old. Most children who are abandoned by their parents, and especially their mother, are left with significant emotional and mental issues. They very often have low self-esteem, thinking that they are not worthy of love. They also feel guilt, thinking they must have done something really bad to make their mother want to abandon them. Due to this deep, deep insecurity, they have a much harder time developing bonds with other caregivers, such as step-parents, caregivers, and teachers. They think that if they open themselves up to love another adult, that adult will inevitably abandon them as well. Abandoned children will also look at their peers, seeing what a normal mother-child bond is supposed to look like, and they generally act badly toward the other children out of jealousy. They also internalize their feelings and decide that they will not allow themselves to open up to be abandoned again, or they attempt to fill that void with very unhealthy relationships, desperate for love in any way they can get it. They can become big people pleasers. Abandoned children can also develop severe anger issues that, if not dealt with, will make the aging child become very bitter or even violent. They need to have complete control over everything and everyone around them. Extreme cases of trying to cope with parental abandonment in early childhood can turn into reactive attachment disorder which is a disorder that displays itself as disturbed and developmentally inappropriate social interactions. They have behavioral difficulties their whole lives. They can begin to self-harm, harming siblings, and even harming animals. They have what we would think of as backwards relationships, right? They avoid any love or care from caregivers, but 
want indiscriminate affection from complete strangers. And then the elephant in the room, the sexual actions between herself and Keith were also a form of coping. They did not feel loved or protected by their grandfather and also saw the obvious difference between them and the other two children still living at home. They had been through the same things and they were always together. They had been through the same things and while always together. Now I could get into how she might have been affected by the obvious discipline differences and really let's call it what it is, abuse, between her adoptive siblings versus herself and Keith. Her grandfather was markedly more aggressive and abusive toward herself and Keith, but I think we all get the idea that her childhood definitely set her up for disaster. So at 15 years old, she made her living on the road in the only way she knew how, by being a sex worker. She made her way west from Troy, Michigan, and everything she knew. People from that area that knew her said that she was not missed. She would make a friend here and there and stay with them for a short while, but she inevitably left and kept on moving. She occupied her time with hitchhiking, drinking, and taking drugs. For five long years, she lived this way, but she eventually landed in Colorado. There, she continued to sell herself to make enough money to live on, but she later stated that the men were horribly mean to her. Once they got her alone, they would beat and rape her. She had never gotten a real job and had no real marketable skills, so she continued to sell herself anyway. Of course, she would get busted and arrested, or her fits of anger and disorderly conduct would land her in jail. But in 1976, she drifted down to Daytona Beach in Florida and decided to stay for a while. Being from Michigan, where it gets so very cold, where she had been forced to sleep and work outside in the winter, the warmth of Florida and the beach was a stark contrast, and she was happy to be there, even though it was not long-lived. Even though she was homeless, she could sleep on the beach and still be a sex worker. She later said she slept with a lot of married men, took their payment, and ripped them off besides. She was now only 20 years old. Eileen then found out that her grandfather had been found dead in his garage of apparent suicide. But after only being in Daytona for a few short months, Eileen met and married 70-year-old Louis Felt, whom she met while hitchhiking. He had money, and she believed this might be her only chance at a somewhat normal life. She wrote a letter back home to one of her only close friends, Dawn, telling her of the marriage. Dawn chuckling during an interview, stating she thought it was funny, but understood why Eileen had jumped so hastily into the marriage. The problem was not just the 50-year age gap between them. Eileen's temper was still just as bad as it had ever been. She would go to the local dive bars and get into physical fights, which was not okay for a wealthy man's wife. The marriage lasted only nine weeks. Lewis divorced her, citing that she had hit him with his own cane when he stopped giving her a money allowance. He was also granted a restraining order. 
Not too long after the divorce, Eileen found out that her beloved brother, Keith, had died from throat cancer. She was completely devastated. He had been the one person in her whole life that she felt closest to. In yet another letter to Dawn, she said, quote, I remember the last time I saw Keith, even though he had cancer, was at your house in the basement. He went to a party and broke his leg coming down a step. His marrow was getting weak. I didn't witness this. I remember him telling me about it. The next time I'd see him from this was when I hitched out to San Francisco to see him at Letterman's Army and Medical Center. The tumor was so huge on his neck. I kept telling him, I'm sorry, I'm bawling my eyes out, Keith, but man, this is really scaring me. But since he volunteered to be a guinea pig for them, they didn't cut it out and it's grown some now. I flew off the handle. Keith said, I know how you're getting your money. I know you're hustling and I want you to stop it. I'm leaving you $10,000 and a beneficiary. I said, I won't take it, Keith. I don't want your money. I just want you to live. Anyway, I stayed three days visiting him. He said I was the only one who'd come to see him in nearly eight months now. This broke my heart. End quote. Her brother had kept his word, and she received the $10,000 after his death. She used the money to pay a fine after a DUI, then blew the rest on booze and a luxury car that she promptly crashed while driving drunk. Eileen Warnos, who had already been a heavy beer drinker, was now becoming an alcoholic. She used booze to drown her sorrows over the loss of her brother. Her ever-present temper got her into trouble when she was arrested and charged with assault and disturbing the peace after throwing a cue ball at a bartender's head. In 1978, now 22 years old, she had decided she was done. She took a 22 caliber gun and shot herself in the stomach. At the hospital, she told the doctors that this was not her first suicide attempt and yet none of the medical staff did anything with regards to psychological help. Three years later, in 1981, she robbed a mini-mart at gunpoint wearing only a bikini. She got the money and left, but once she had driven onto the highway, her car overheated and she had to pull over. The cops at that point were already looking for her and she was promptly arrested. She received three years in prison. Eileen was 27 years old when she was released. As soon as she was free, she went back into her old familiar life of alcohol, sex work, and the nomadic life that she had always known. But this would be a turning point in Eileen's life. She had been through boyfriend after boyfriend, and it never worked out. So she decided she would try to have that connection with women. Her preferred hangouts were biker bars in South Florida. In 1984, she was in Key West and was arrested after cashing forged checks at a local bank. By 1986, Eileen was called Lee by new friends she had made. And in that same year, she was arrested in Miami for auto theft, resisting arrest, and obstruction of justice. She had given the authorities Lori, her adoptive sister's name. Soon after, she was arrested again for pulling a gun on a man and robbing him of $200.
Then in June of 1986, Eileen would meet whom she referred to as the love of her life, Ty Moore, in a biker bar. Ty was 24 and Eileen was 30. Ty worked as a maid in a hotel. Eileen was selling herself along the highways of Florida. Ty later explained, quote, She was in there alone. I was in there alone. We started a conversation and she went home with me that night. End quote. They were an instant couple. Eileen wanted to pamper Ty, so she tried to support them both on the money she made from her work. Even though Ty said she did not approve of Eileen's choice of employment, Eileen said in letters to her friend that Ty spent their money faster than she could earn it. She didn't want to continue being a sex worker, but it was the only way she knew how to make a quick buck. Eileen referred to Ty as her wife, and they were close. Ty adopted her wandering lifestyle, and the two lived in apartments and trailers, and sometimes they slept in the woods. Their relationship lasted for four years, the longest any had lasted for Eileen. They were always together, unless Eileen was working, watching TV, or drinking in bars. Eileen still had her temper, though, and was in trouble a few times for getting into bar fights. She and Ty worked cleaning hotel rooms, and the lack of money was causing stress in their relationship. By the fall of 1989, Eileen was 33 years old and had been a sex worker in Florida for more than a decade. She had been an attractive young lady when she married Louis Fell, but after all those years of what she had put her body through, both from her profession as well as the alcohol, the wear and tear on her body, and especially her face, was becoming obvious. Her looks were fading. Her younger, sweet smile had turned into a hardened scowl. Eileen worried constantly that Ty would leave her and she'd be left all alone again. Desperate for money, she went out on the evening of November 30th, 1989, to make some quick cash with a John just outside Tampa. She was picked up by a man named Richard Mallory. Richard was an electronics store owner from Clearwater, Florida. He had previously spent 10 years in prison for rape and sexual violence. He was headed to Daytona for a weekend of partying and agreed to have sex with Eileen for money. They pulled just off of I-95, parked in the woods, and drank together, chit-chatting until dawn. But once he knew she was drunk, he tied her to the steering wheel. Here is the court testimony that Eileen gave us as to what happened that night. Caution, it is very graphic, but in her own words. She said, quote, He put the cord around my neck and he said, Yes, you are, bitch. He said, You're going to do everything I tell you to do, and if you don't, I'll kill you right now and I'll fuck you after just like the sluts I've done after. It doesn't matter to me. Your body will still be warm for my cock. And he was choking me, and I was holding it like this. And he said, do you want to die, slut? And I just nodded no. And then he said, are you going to listen to everything I've got to say and do? I nodded yes and laid down in the car seat. Then he began to start having animal sex, and he's doing this in a very violent manner, movement. And then he, 
I don't know, I talk street talk. So I was crying my brains out. All right, so he takes the visine and he lifts up my legs and he puts what turns out to be rubbing alcohol in the visine bottle and he sticks some up my rectum area and that really hurt. And that really hurt really bad because he tore me up bad for a while. Then he put some up my vagina, which hurt really bad. And side note, she was visibly seriously trembling and shaking and crying hard. And he pulled my nose open and squirted rubbing alcohol down my nose. And he said, I'm saving your eyes for the grand finale. And he put the visine back on the dash. And I was really pissed. I didn't care. I was yelling at him. I thought to myself, I've got to fight or I'm going to die. He's already said he's going to kill me. I jumped up really fast and spit in his face. He said, you're a dead bitch, and he was wiping his eyes. I grabbed my bag, whipped my pistol out, and shot immediately, twice, I think, as fast as I could. End quote. Eileen shot him four times with her twenty-two pistol in the chest and back. She then looted him and his car, taking anything she could of value, covered his body with some carpet she found nearby, and took his car. Now... Experts say that this could have been the breaking point that turned Eileen into a serial killer that she hadn't, up to that moment, ever considered murdering. Unfortunately, during her court case, the fact that Richard Mallory had that criminal background was not admitted. Regardless, she drove home and told Ty what she had done. Ty said she didn't believe her at first, thinking she didn't have it in her to kill anyone. But at Eileen's urging, they packed all of their possessions into Mallory's stolen car and moved into another motel. Eileen wiped the car for Prince and ditched it, which was found the next day. His body was found two weeks later. But Ty did not leave Eileen because she believed she would never do it again. Six months later, Eileen murdered David Spears by shooting him six times, his naked body found next to the road. She had murdered five more men by the end of 1990, all of her murders happening within a year's time. She and Ty went for a drive out in the country in one of the victim's cars. Ty took a corner too fast and wrecked the car. When help arrived, Eileen ripped the license plate off the car and threw it into some brush. Fire and rescue came, but by then Eileen had taken Ty and they fled. They hitched their way back to Daytona, but there had been witnesses and police sketches were drawn. Florida authorities already knew that they had a serial killer on their hands. Once they were able to identify who the wrecked car belonged to, they realized it was one of the victims. They immediately released the sketches to the media and the calls came pouring in. When Ty saw that they were wanted, she took off and fled to Pennsylvania to her sisters and left Eileen to face it alone. Ty later stated that she had become scared of Eileen but thought up to that point that Eileen would have killed her if she had left her. So police searched the area pawn shop records and found things Eileen had sold that belonged to her victims and was identified because she had a criminal record in Florida and obviously her prints were on file. 
Once they located her, they followed her for two days, where on January 9th, 1991, she wound up at a biker bar called The Last Resort, and she was arrested. Once she was in custody, they located Ty and told her to coax a confession out of Eileen over the phone. Here is some audio of that phone call. I don't what the hell is going on, Lee. They've called. They've been up to my parents again. They've got my sister now asking her questions. So I don't know what the hell's going on. Huh. Were they asking your sister questions? I don't know. Lee, they're, they're coming after me. I know they are. No, they're not. They're innocent. They've got to. Why are they asking so many questions then? Because I want you to go to jail for something that you did. This is unfair. Okay. You've got to do, okay? I'm not going to let you go to jail. You evidently don't love me anymore. You don't trust me or anything. I mean, you're going to let me get in trouble for something that I didn't do. I'm not. I can't help it. I'm scared shitless. I know. I don't know whether I should keep on living or if I should... No, Ty, Ty, listen. What if they don't believe me? Ty, listen. What? Okay. Yes. Why the hell did you do this? Why did you do this? confessed to the murders. Her reason was that the men had tried to rape her and she had killed them in self-defense. In the book, Dear Dawn, Eileen Warnos in her own words, are most all of the letters Eileen wrote to her childhood friend, Dawn. And it's not an easy read. That's not to say that the words are difficult to understand. It is that you can really see how disorganized Eileen's thoughts were and just how deep her paranoia was with regards to every single person who came anywhere near her. She was convinced that the guards at the prison were poisoning her food. She stated that the police drugged her up before questioning her right after her arrest so that she wouldn't be coherent enough to understand what she was saying. She complained that her mind was being tortured and that her head was being crushed by sonic pressure. But then there are moments of clarity where she knows full well that everyone, including her attorney and a woman who adopted her, were just there for the money they'd make off of her story, and she was 100% correct about that. The fact is, she owned her mistakes, explained her life story, and left it out there to be a cautionary tale. Eileen was officially diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder. Then four days later, she was sentenced to death. Five more counts and five more death sentences. Lee, it sounds like you've been betrayed by everyone. That's right, I was. I was, that's why I don't care if I'm executed and leave this planet. During her court battles, a documentary of sorts called Eileen Warnos, The Selling of a Serial Killer, 
was filmed, and she befriended its creator, Nick Broomfield, during the filming. At this point, she had been on death row for about 10 years, and she told him that she couldn't take it anymore, that she was ready to die. Nick subsequently put together another documentary about her called Eileen, Life and Death of a Serial Killer. Both are good, and I recommend watching if you're interested. I found both full movies on YouTube, and they were on Netflix, but I checked and I didn't see them there, at least in this country. I also checked Hulu, and they were not there either, but things could have changed by the time of this recording. But Nick later commented, quote, I think this anger developed inside her, and she was working as a sex worker. I think she had a lot of awful encounters on the roads, and I think this anger just spilled out from inside her and finally exploded into incredible violence. That was her way of surviving. I think Eileen really believed that she had killed in self-defense. I think someone who's deeply psychotic can't really tell the difference between something that is life-threatening and something that is a minor disagreement that you could say something that she didn't agree with. She would get into a screaming black temper about it. And I think that's what had caused these things to happen. And at the same time, when she wasn't in those extreme moods, there was an incredible humanity to her. End quote. Eileen Warnos was executed by lethal injection on October 9th, 2002. She declined her last meal. Her last words were, quote, Yes, I would just like to say I'm sailing with the rock and I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus, June 6th, like the movie, Big Mothership and all. I'll be back. I'll be back. End quote. Her remains were cremated and sent to her friend Dawn up in Michigan, who spread them underneath a tree. So as far as classifying out of the four types of serial killers, which Eileen falls under, well, it's an interesting question. While she doesn't really fit neatly into any of them, the closest would be the power and control type. She did live by her own personal set of rules and guidelines, though I don't believe that she got any sexual satisfaction from her murders at all. So that was a whole lot of information to cram into one podcast. So tell me, guys, and I know everyone's familiar with her story. Do you think she was born to kill or was she conditioned to kill? I would love to get your feedback and opinions about her. Please leave me a comment below if you're watching or all of my contact information is in the description box or the notes. But most importantly, thank you guys so much for listening because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day.